We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's going on and welcome back everyone to another edition of the Big Blue Banter podcast here. It's another somber week for the Giants, but a little bit of hope in the sense that, hey, they don't have to play this week at least. There's a bye week this week, but that doesn't mean they went the whole week without any drama. We'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, but for now, I want to say what's up to my partner, Nick. How you doing, Nick? Really good, really good. Second time is the charm. I like the second uh, the second attempt here. The second act is going to be good. The second take is going to be better. Yeah, we did already record this bye week, <laughs> yes, but, and it was one of our better ones. We both liked it, but... Unfortunately, we had some technical difficulties and we had to move on from it. We're re-recording it now. But the good news is, before we recorded it, we knew nothing about Jamon Brown, the Giants, uh, off, the Giants offensive guard they signed earlier this week, or they claimed earlier this week off of waivers. And now we know a little bit more, and we're going to dive into that. So we'll have that. We'll have more on everything Giants-related. But first, let's start things off with a little bit of a trade deadline recap. So... Trade deadline came and went for the New York Giants, and nothing happened. A lot of people were surprised by that. I wasn't one of them. I said the entire time I thought that the only possible player they could move is Janoris Jenkins. I'm not going to reveal where I heard it, but I have heard from somebody I trust that the Giants have actually been trying to move Olivier Vernon for quite some time. And Vernon was had no takers. Nobody wanted to trade for Vernon, and that doesn't surprise me because although Vernon is – Pretty underrated among Giants fans, at least when he's on the field. He carries salary cap hits of $19 million over the next two seasons. In addition to that, he's been limited by high ankle sprains in each of the past two seasons. He's really had an injury history that dates back to when the Giants first uh, you know, signed him. Even in the first half of his season with the Giants, he had a broken hand that limited him the entire first half. And he went on a tear in the second half with seven and a half sacks over his final nine games in that 2016 season. But the first half was marred by injuries. The first half of this season has been marred by injuries. And last season, the entire second half was marred by injuries as he tried to play through a high ankle sprain. So three straight injured years, $19.5 million cap hits. I wasn't surprised no one took Vernon. But I thought that a team would take a swing on Janoris Jenkins, even though he has $14.5 million cap hit next year. And his play has been awful compared to what it usually is this season. But... You know, in the end, the teams who were desperate for cornerback help aren't the type of teams that are going to trade a third-round pick or a second-round pick for cornerback in this spot because they don't necessarily have the cap space moving forward to project, you know, a $14.5 million cap hit, such as the Steelers. They really can't afford to add this guy to their roster. And it's not about this season. It's about next season for where they can't afford Jenkins. So that didn't surprise me. Obviously, they weren't going to move any of their younger guys. The Odell Beckham stuff was – you know, nonsense. His cap hit alone is 
bonus money alone made a trade never possible. Eli Manning wasn't going to wait for a trade clause. I don't know if there's any interest there anyway to begin with. Um, anything that surprised you, Nick, about the trade deadline? No, no. I think uh, I think you kind of hit basically everything that I was kind of thinking. I thought that, again, Jenkins was probably the closest in my mind. But ultimately, like you said, those factors overruled. Yeah, and, and I think again, I think it's I think it's important to understand that even if the Giants have to deal with Jenkins and his salary and that decision later on, he still presents a value now, even if you don't have to win games now, for getting all for, for having a defensive backfield that grows. He's he's the veteran there, so I think that totally keeps that unit intact as well. That's yeah, a good point. They're they're not going. They don't want a defensive backfield where the most tenured player is B.W. Webb, who's bouncing around the league and is his first year with the New York Giants this year. So. It makes a lot of sense to me there. Um, nothing really surprising about the NFL trade deadline overall. There were some interesting trades. Golden Tate moving to the Eagles, for example. Ha, Clinton Dix moving to the Redskins for a fourth-round pick. And that just goes to show you there probably never was a big-time market on Landon Collins. Now, if you believe the sources or the one source uh, and the report from Ralph Facchiano of SNY, the Giants were f- received some offers for Collins, according to him, and – they were looking for a second-round pick next season plus another draft pick. Uh, I just don't know. I never really buy these anonymous sources. I just – something in general in me, I just am not a big fan of anonymous sources. I think that it's easy to I, – I, I, I'll leave it at that. But I don't – I think we'll find out this offseason when the Giants decide to either franchise tag or lock Landon up, which I think is more likely to a long-term deal, that they always had it in his plans to keep him. They can't – you can't just – People, fans think fire sale. Fans think, you know, it's Madden where you just blow up the whole thing and you just keep trading and trading and trading, collecting these meaningless, for the most part, meaningless draft picks, in my opinion. That's not what you're doing here. They traded Damon Harrison because he has massive cap hit over the next two years of his contract. He's turning 30. He was playing less than 50% of the snaps, and they had unbelievable depth behind him as it showed last week. They traded Eli Apple because he was a bad apple, no pun intended. And I know I said this earlier, but listen, he's a guy who never bought in. You heard the story from the undrafted rookie free agent on the Giants two years ago, or last year he revealed this, when everything was cracking down and and the whole locker room was collapsing around the Giants. And Eli Apple was believed to be maybe that anonymous leak that kept leaking things to Justina Anderson. And the undrafted free agent said, listen, I was with the Giants during Apple's rookie season. He didn't pay attention in meetings. He didn't take notes on his iPad. He didn't do any, you know, he wasn't a professional at all. The Giants are sick, were quite frankly sick of it. And I know some fans, you know, we're probably happy last Sunday night when he got burned bad by the been by the Minnesota Vikings passing attack and committed his usual holding penalties. Um, it's a bad signing. They moved on from it. They didn't want him in the locker room. So to me, the Giants, there's no such thing as really a fire sale. I know the Raiders traded away two of their young assets. But the Raiders are a pathetic franchise right now, let's be honest. The Giants don't want to become the Raiders. That's not the team they want to emulate right now. So to me, everything they did at this trade deadline and before the trade deadline with the two trades they made, made a lot of sense. Um, So we'll move on a little bit to another hot topic of the week. And it was um, former Giants VP of college scouting, the guy who basically made all the, not all the final decisions. That was Jerry Reese on their draft classes, but the guy who informed Jerry Reese to make his final decisions, Mark Ross, Took a little beat down on Eli Manning earlier this week. Stepped on Good Morning Football and just told everyone Manning needs to be benched. When they asked Mark Ross, how does Pat Shermer fix this Giants team? Mark Ross laughed and said, pray. I mean, this is just pathetic, in my opinion, by Mark Ross. The one thing you'll say about Jerry Reese, and you can say all the bad things you want. The minute he was fired from the Giants, he never aired his dirty laundry. He hasn't done one media appearance. He hasn't done anything there. So, for Mark Ross to step on here and talk this much crap about a team that he built, a team that he is as much responsible as anyone else for the struggles right now, when you look at every single, all those 11 draft classes that he was responsible for, and they didn't hit on a single third-round pick, and the second-round picks, they have three on the roster, three who matter on the roster right now, two that were drafted in the last two seasons under their tenure, so we're not even fully sure if they're great players yet. They're Definitely quality players in Dalvin Thomas and Sterling Shepard. But this is a guy who also missed on back-to-back top 10 picks in Eli Apple and Eric Flowers. I'm talking huge misses. They got nothing this franchise out of Flowers or Apple. Nothing meaningful out of either player. It's a little bit out of Apple down the stretch run of the 2016 season when they made the playoffs. That's it. You can't miss on one top 10 pick 
and expect to be successful. You can't miss on two. So what did you think of Mark Ross's decision this week to, you know, go on the air and bash Eli and bash the Giants, essentially? Yeah, I think it's kind of like, again, just another executive leaving and doing it in the wrong way. And yeah, in terms of it's not really a tape thing. So I didn't even I didn't even kind of get where he was coming from. <laughs> and the other side of it is like meaning there, he had an axe to grind that for whatever reason he's grinding it. Right. And that's so who knows? And the other side of it, too, is just it reminded me so much of McAdoo. And right. What he had in I guess that was in the spring. Right. Where he's calling out linemen, not remembering their names. Stuff like that is just like. You know, it's good that he's not in the room anymore, basically, I guess is the way to think of it. Agreed. And then the last thing, because the Giants are refused to, you know, or we got two more things. Sorry, I forgot. But there's two more things that happened during the bye week in between this time. And the first one is the Kyle Oletta situation. Um, so, you know, we still have only heard one side of the story. Let's keep that in mind. We've seen a report, a police report from the people who arrested Kyle Oletta. And that's written in their point of view. That's written in their recollection of the situation. Still haven't heard a word from the Giants or Kyle Oletta on the situation. So I guess if you want to just take the, the police report for what it says, then Kyle Oletta, you know, looks like a really bad person to me. But, you know, the the backlash for the Kyle Oletta situation for a guy who was late to work, which is not a great thing, but at the same time it happens. We've all been late to work before. And when we've been late to work before, we've taken some shortcuts on the road. It's, you know, it, this is just everyday life stuff for people who are late to work. And, yes, should he have – stopped when the cop was trying to wave him down as he passed through a zone where you weren't supposed to drive through that day. Sure. He, he probably should have. Did he almost hit a cop? Eh, I don't know if I believe that. I really don't. I just don't know if I believe that. I'm sorry. I mean, you, I wasn't there. So I just, I'm, I'm supposed to take their word for it. That's just not what I'm going to do. And regardless, this to me has no factor in what he can do on the field as a quarterback, in his decision making as a quarterback from a mental processing standpoint, in his leadership skills. Uh, you know, not everyone's Eli Manning. Not everyone's going to show up to work every day at 5 a.m. And you know what? You want that from a quarterback. You really do. So I understand the frustration with what Letta did and why, you know, some fans don't like it. And, and and I get that. I really do. But I just can't condemn a player. And I know some fans have wanted him released. Some fans want him to never play it down for the Giants for whatever reason. I can't do that. I, I just can't do that after one mistake. Everybody makes mistakes. And We've seen players make a lot worse mistakes. Ben Roethlisberger, Tyreek Hill, look up their stories, and they're still playing meaningful snaps in the NFL. Do you see it any differently there, Nick? No, I think that you know a, a big part of scouting is understanding the integrity and understanding the composition of the player to to, to you know to then project how he's going to play in the field and if he's going to be competitively tough down the stretch. And you know, so that's where this would lot. That's where this falls under. I think. I think you could draw some conclusions there, but you have to, we, we have incomplete information, giant scouting and the pro departments at all other places have those, have that information in terms of what his college coaches thought of him, what they said, you know, from all different types of basically records and data um, and just a lot more than we do. So I think he checks those boxes and he was highlighted by people outside of those, uh, you know, outside of that community in the draft process last year as being very, 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 you know, no one thought that this would happen. They would, they would be the last person that, that this would happen to. So if it's that type of thing, I really think it has very little bearing because it, it doesn't reflect on his decision-making. It really doesn't. It's, and as you said, it's just echoing what you said. It doesn't. If you can hit the character issue, maybe, but I would just look at it. It does seem like it's out of character, despite the fact that, again, he maybe has some, some other tickets in his past and everything. I just, I don't see it as a, as a major roadblock at all. Yeah, I mean, there was some digging on his history of traffic violations, including a time he was caught for speeding in Fairfax, Virginia. And I've been in Fairfax, Virginia. I've been in a car this past summer. I went to a wedding for one of my friends and we were driving through Fairfax, Virginia, and my friend was driving. He got pulled over and he got, you know, whatever it's, it's called. Um, I'm forgetting the word. I think it's like a not a felony. Whatever it is, it's considered um, if you're going 15 miles per hour over the speed limit in Fairfax, Virginia, there's cops waiting to pull you over and give you this ticket, and they make a lot of money off it. You can just Google it, and you'll find out a lot of information on how people have been complaining about this. So, you know, don't dig too deep into his history of traffic violations. Like, I just don't know what we're talking about anymore when we're talking about this type of stuff. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it at that. But to me, I'm not worried about it at all as far as him getting on the field. But then some good news for the Giants, actually, at least in my opinion, was – a little bit later in the week, Jamon Brown, the former number 72 overall pick for the Los Angeles Rams in the 2015 NFL Draft, the guy who started all 17 games for the Rams last season at the offensive guard position, including the playoff game, 
a guy who's had stretches of good play, massive six foot four, three hundred forty pound mauler. Sean McVay basically said this was one of the toughest decisions he's made since being a head coach. He says he's got nothing but respect for Brown when they traded for Dante Fowler earlier this week, Los Angeles, and they needed to clear up a roster spot. They also needed to clear up some cap space, and they brought in and they in their decision to bring in Fowler led to the decision to cut Jamon Brown, who was basically Wally Pipped uh, this season. He was suspended for the first couple games. Uh, for an issue that that shouldn't linger for the Giants, at least moving forward. And the player who played in ha- in, uh, in, sp- in place of him, Austin Blitz, has actually been really freaking good for the Rams. And their offensive line is number one in the NFL, according to Pro Football Focus and Pass Protection. I'm sorry, in run blocking, the number two in Pass Protection. So they're not going to take a guy out of the lineup on the best offensive line in football. It's just not going to happen. And so for that reason, the Rams decided to move on from Brown and – the Rams, you know, the Rams trash is now the Giants treasure because the Giants are one of five teams to put in a waiver claim for Brown. And because the Giants are in such bad shape in the standings, they were able to land him. Nick, have you had a chance to look at Brown? And do you think that maybe he could be somehow, some way, a quick fix in the sense that, listen, if Brown lands on this Giants offensive line at the right guard position and plays good football, that's all he needs to play, a little above average football. Maybe just maybe the Giants now have one fewer position that they have to fill this offseason on that offensive line. Yeah, the, uh, I'm going to try to temper my enthusiasm as much as I can. I should like meditate before I get into this. I watched six games of Brown specifically in the last 48 hours, and I had charted most of the Rams' play from last year. So it was one of those things where I kind of almost kind of overlooked his play and, and kind of forgot that he was the guy that was then not starting, and Blythe was playing so well that basically shut him out of position. Um, like Dan said, 6'4", 340 pounds. Would not necessarily – he's a big guy. But his biggest trait for the Giants, I think, is, it should excite people the most, is the versatility. Uh, he's good in he's – he's a very good zone blocker. He's good. He can pull and is good in gap schemes as well. The 340-pound frame is thick and wide. Uh, it's one of those things, though, where when he goes to cut block, he's like a 340-pound basically bowling ball with pretty good athletic abilities. One of those guys, when he finishes, he's often somersaulting. Uh, you know, kind of down the field, very, very nimble, but not basically on his feet. Basically, it's kind of his upper half where he's pretty, he's really pretty athletic. Uh, some of his best traits, uh, best, best traits, uh, play strength in pass pro is, is honestly, it's very good. Uh, you know, there, the, his tape last year against Cox in week 14, Cox beat him twice. And of the two times, one was because he lost his balance. And the other, the other main, there were no main issues. He was, he, he just, he really held up very well against both their DTs. Again, the playoffs against um, against Grady Jarrett held up very well, only losing minimal times. Um, and again, both the run game and the uh, and the pass game. In the pass game, if you slide away from him and he's on Gilgan's Island on the zone, he holds up very well there. Um, is one of those guys that kind of has deliberate hands. Uh, so his use of hands, I would grade as like kind of solid to good because they're not insanely active. He's just very deliberate in his movements. He's rarely caught out of place. So one of the concerns that we have is uh, in recognizing stunts since college, he's been kind of, he's had issues there, but he recovers very well because while the stunts happen, he just doesn't, he's not moving out of place. His feet aren't all over the place. His balance is not an issue. Um, you know, all those types of things are just, it, make, it makes me really excited. And now I kind of understand the full situation, why the Rams had to get rid of him, why the Giants, I honestly think, you know, I can't think of a more significant um, acquisition that the Giants have made really since Ogletree uh, for, for this team. And that may sound crazy. It just is what it is. Like this is, this is, this is something that's a, that's as good as a draft pick and definitely helps them. And it also helps him because of his versatility. If he doesn't start at guard, he can absolutely be a backup swing tackle. He has the size for that. Um, and just overall, I think he can play on the left side if, if need be. And that value I think is huge. And I, I, this is going to sound, I haven't really thought this out yet. I think he could challenge Wheeler for the spot right now at right tackle. Do I think they'll do that? Well, I think they do that. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, I think he is that good. And it was kind of one of those, a great move. And I'm not, I'm surprised more teams didn't put in for him. Yeah. And, you know, I, I understand your excitement because I'm right there with you. I think this is one of the best moves the Giants have made this entire, this entire season and dating back, like you said, even to the trade for Alec Ogletree. I mean, when you look at how poor their track record was aside from that in free agency and during that time. But really, in addition to the fact that he does have the size to compete at right tackle potentially or as a swing tackle if they need him for depth, he also played the offensive tackle position at Louisville 
for two years. So he has experience playing it as well. And when you look at a, a move like this, you think, you know, it's a waiver claim. How good can it be? But this is the, this is what I like the most about this new Giants era of football. They're not like the old scholarship era, as Carl Banks likes to call them, of Jerry Reese and Mark Ross, and and then for the four years or for the two years of Ben McAdoo, where they just let these offensive linemen kind of start no matter what happens. They wouldn't bring in competition. There was a season they went into the year with Bobby Hart and Eric Flowers and no one behind them at, at offensive tackle, and you know. These days are gone for the Giants. They're making moves all the time on their offensive line. They made tons of changes. They benched Omame, a guy they paid a ton of money for, and that was completely unexpected. And now they bring in Brown, a guy who has a track record of playing really good football in the NFL, and hit the waiver wire unexpectedly. You rarely see five teams. I know you said you, you were surprised more teams than putting a claim, which I am as well. But, you know, at this point in the season, teams yeah. are – some teams are not competing for the playoffs other teams are and they need the depth other teams don't want to add you know don't want to mix mass you know mix and match with their 53 man roster because he has to go immediately on that 53 but the Giants are not one of them and you know five teams is a lot to see make a claim for a player at this stage of the season you know you see a lot of players who are released right now go unclaimed completely you see like Eric Flowers for example you see a lot of players go claimed by maybe one team max but you know to me claimed by five teams means a lot and I'm really excited about this signing for so many reasons. The versatility, the ability to step in and maybe be their future starter at right guard or at worst be, you know, a, 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 a you know one of the seven or eight guys who make this offensive line moving forward in 2019. This is a guy, like you said, Nick, who it's hard. It's going to be hard to cut him because he can play both positions because he can play the, the outside right tackle and either guard spot. So I'm excited about this one for sure. But on that note, that's kind of all we got for as far as the, the the big news for this week. We're gonna move on to a little bit of a all twenty two recap, and we won't dwell too much on this because again, there was a lot of bad, and I know a lot of people are at this point are are kind of fed up, you know, with what's going on with this team. But you know, the offense had six points with under four minutes remaining against the Washington Redskins last week at home. They didn't use the hurry up much. We've talked about in the past. They struggled to stay on the field on third downs. They struggled, as they usually do, to score in the red zone. I didn't like what I saw in the All-22 from Man Eli Manning, but I thought there were other factors, you know, in play, separation from the receivers, the offensive line play. I know you saw it a little bit differently, and you have a harsher critique on, on Manning than I do, though mine isn't, trust me, mine isn't light. But, Nick, I wanted to dive into that because I want to hear what you thought about watching the quarterback in a game that you maybe thought should be his last with the team. Yeah, maybe as a, I think as a starter, um, and I don't mean to sound so gloomy, and I don't mean to have this tone and write articles that are kind of against this guy for being such a giant hero for for as long as he has been. But it's just been tough to watch, and why why it's tough to watch is not because it's terrible all the time and seeing it through a lens that's biased, but because you see the first half of this game. Um, this is why this is how I'm going to kind of get to my to my answer. The first half of this game, where you know he has 18 dropbacks and he's touched only four times. And uh, he was sacked twice in the first half, and they just they can't put up points. And it's not just because he played bad; he played well. He he drove them down the field the first half. So they, you know, you see him taking chances with deep fade routes. You see him with good timing on angle routes. You see him doing what we talked about in the Houston game. And then he throws a very bad interception, which we'll get to later. And hey, you know, he made a bad read, and he's making bad reads, and that's but that's okay. I'm I'm still okay with him at that point. It's when you get to the third quarter, and I just want to see overall when you get into halftime and you go back with your coaches and you see what the what the, what the defense is doing to you. And quite frankly, the Redskins weren't doing anything crazy at all. Um, and you want to see adjustments. You want to see not just adjustments, but you want to see the play get sharper. I should say it's not just a it's a hey we need to do something different. It's like no, take the best things that you did from the first quarter and let's go do them even better because we think we know what to expect now. And you see the first four, three or four drives of that third quarter are just three and outs. And it's not just the third down thing. And this is why I wrote my piece for cover1.net this week. I dove into the second down play where there were a couple of sacks and you're just seeing guys get missed on the missed in terms of just basic throws to get into third and four and third and five. We're not talking about runs where they have to, you know, they you're running on second down and everyone knows it. It's more about, you know, like hitting Barkley on a check down play, which is a check down play, but guess what? It was the right read. And just, you're not seeing that getting done and executed. So all of a sudden the offense just hits this roadblock and pretty soon you're in the fourth quarter where it felt like there was just no chance to get in, to get into the game, but yet they were down by a score. 
And so anyway, I just think that from a field perspective, you can't end in that result after three quarters and not try to make a change against a, against a, a division rival that they should be up for on that side of the house. Um, so that was kind of the take. And it's it just, I think going forward, I, you know, it's been multiple games now where they have not come close to four quarters of, of offensive football. And I think a change needs to be made. I mean, I hear you in the sense that in two of the last three games, the Giants have had six points with about five minutes or four minutes remaining in the fourth quarter. It's completely unacceptable. But at the same time, I'm just not sold that Alex Tanney or Kyle Oletta is going to help this team now. If their goal is to win right now, which unfortunately, you know, for fans who have to see the bigger picture, for fans like us or for fans like people who are following us, I should say, that can see the forest through the trees – it doesn't make sense to play Heli Manning right now because, you know, you want to predict for the future. But Pat Shermer in his first year as head coach and Dave Gettleman in his first year as general manager wants to win some football games. They don't want to go 1-15. in 15. I promise you that. It doesn't look good on them. So I'm not sure that Alex Tanny or Kyle Aletta would be better. But I will say this, Nick. You know, after reading, after reading Jeff Schwartz's breakdown this week, something really alarming to me that I thought I saw was that, you know, that I read was, you know, some of these sacks that Manning is taking – He's not trusting his offensive line. What Schwartz said, and, you know, from an offensive lineman perspective and standpoint, he was obviously former lineman for the Giants and the Chiefs and the Panthers. Um, What Schwartz said was, listen, he's not trusting his offensive line. And when quarterbacks don't trust their offensive line, it's really, really detrimental to the the team's success. There were times where he pointed out a sack where Manning thought Solder got beat off the snap. But he really didn't give Solder a chance to recover. And Solder eventually did recover. But because Manning basically right the minute he thought he saw right off the snap where he thought he saw Solder was beat, he changed, you know, he slid and he changed his footwork within the pocket. And it led to a sack because he didn't allow time for his left tackle to recover. And I've seen that a lot this season. And I know you've seen it too, Nick. Um, And there's no trust in his offensive line. And that's not a good – and that was really the case last season as well. But this season, I mean, Manning has already taken 31 sacks. And, you know, if you want to blame that all on the offensive line, be my guest. But then explain to me why it's such an outlier in his career. The Giants' offensive line had much less talent on paper in the 2017 season, in the 2016 season. Hell, even in the 2015 season and 2011, you can go back as far as you want. And this is not the least talented offensive line. Meanwhile, he's already taken 31 sacks, which matched – the total 31 sacks through eight games and he's only, and he only had 31 sacks through 16 games last season. And by the way, last season was one of only two times in his career. He's had more than 30 sacks. His previous career high in sacks is 39. He's on pace to take 62 sacks this year. At some point you have to blame that a little bit on the quarterback and, and, you know, maybe more than a little bit on the quarterback. But for me, Nick, my biggest issue with Manning remains the same thing that it's been throughout the season. And that's that he, his, his red zone play. That's where I really – it always comes back to me, Nick, because I think he's he's not so bad between the 20s. Taking bad sacks, sure, but he's making big throws too that people really aren't giving him credit for, the, the, the deep ball at least, that he's the few deep balls he's hooked up on, and more than a few compared to the rest of the – relative to the rest of the quarterbacks in the NFL over the past few weeks. But in the red zone is where I have the biggest issue with him. Obviously, I want to talk about the red zone play, Nick, where DJ Swearinger intercepted him. My issue with this play is not what Swearinger said. Swearinger said it was film study, basically baited Manning into it. My issue with this play is that, you know, you have a cover two beater, and I'm going to have you talk about this in a second, but the tight end, a guy who, you know, you drafted for these spots. You drafted him at six foot three with a 36-inch vertical and 4.1 speed and the ability to outlead players and make contested catches in the red zone, which he's done last season. He did it well last season, and – Given rare opportunities this season, he's done as well. You have him running a route on this interception where he's running a deep a corner to the back of the end zone where if Manning just anticipates this throw or just anticipates where he could be and what could happen, he could put a ball up there for a 50-50 spot where, where Ingram can certainly outleap the cornerback and use his body and catch the touchdown. Even if Eli completes this pass to Beckham and it's not an interception, it's going to get stopped four tackle at the five-yard line, and then they're just going to have second and goal with a shorter field. And too many plays this year have have been, you know, thrown. And too many passes in the red zone have been attempted short, short, of the, short of the end zone, and that's just completely unacceptable. Manning has eight touchdowns this season, but three of them come in garbage time. So in reality, he has five touchdowns in eight games. 
that's the crux of the Giants right now. They can't score in the red zone. I mean, what did you see on this play, Nick? And in general, what have you seen in the red zone? Yeah, the red zone's been been very tough, and it's not just him. And just to give a quick disclaimer, their their running game is just as bad. So, with that in mind, let's move to this play. And this play was this play was tough. This play is called uh, levels with corner. Uh, it's called double China seven in most. I guess it's West Coast playbooks. Um, and basically, what's going on is you have a three by one set. Um, it's run in the red zone a lot. It's run by a wide range of teams. It's not a systematic thing. It's you know you see it at Oregon. Uh, you know J- Justin Herbert runs it often. Uh, and what happens is the two outside receivers run basically fin or in-breaking routes, whatever term you want to use, at varying depths. Again, according to what, how they want to run it, and where they, and you know, who, who's the coach basically. And then the inside receiver, the inner slot receiver, is either running a corner route, it's the way the Giants run it, or he's running basically like a seam route or a post route, which is like the way the Eagles run it. I actually broke all this down in one whole piece for inside the pylon. So if you want 1,400 words on this, <laughs> you could go check it out over there. Um, what ends up happening on this play is Manning has, this has been one of the more successful plays for the Giants in the red zone. Uh, in, in the Houston game, he used it twice. He threw it against the, uh, he threw it for the touchdown to seal the game to Sterling Shepard. And he threw it on the very key third down in the far red zone. The issue on this play was Manning has gotten a little addicted to, to, to throwing it against man. And when you throw it against man coverage, you're hoping that the rub between the two inner receivers creates enough separation where you can kind of not jam the ball in there, but you got to be perfect. And the issue on this play specifically is it's a cover two beater. So it beats two deep looks, whether that's it morphs into something else is another question, but just in general, it's used, it's, it's used as a half field read to that side. What happened is basically the the Redskins played a version of, I think basically cover three match. Uh, so pattern match and Swearinger turns right into the ball because he reads that he reads the play and he understands that the Giants have run this often. Um, what he's missing, what Dan's alluding to, is the corner route on that side of the field is really the only chance that you have against cover three. There's going to be a little soft void there. He's not going to snap it hard on his break in terms of Ingram, and hopefully you hit him in the back shoulder pretty quickly and in a virtually very similar timing, and, and it would be for a touchdown. So he misses that side of the play. I look at it from perspective from the perspective of you know, how Shermer said he wanted that play. He wanted him to pull that down. He didn't. He doesn't want the ball out at all. He probably doesn't even want the ball to that side if, if to be totally conservative because on the other side, you have the cover three beater, which was a post-swing route combination. So immediately I have an issue because I'm saying, hey, look, the offense is not being run as designed. It's not, it's not a Shermer thing. That's how like 90% of plays, that's a bad number, but a large percentage of plays are run in the NFL is two half field reads and the quarterback gets to kind of choose which is better or he has different options that he can kind of go through to either side. Um, so in general, it was just it, right away you see the headwinds and then well, on the execution side, you don't see him interpreting or can try to confirm man or not man coverage after the snap. And that's where it's just like, okay, he's just kind of, he's just going with this. And you saw that a lot this game where it's like, hey, he's not he's ignoring the initiative that pre-snap motions and other things are giving him. And he's bailing on the progression and just going, hey, I'm going to do this no matter what. And that's where it's kind of it's discerning. In the red zone, it's really hard because the windows are super tight. You got to be right and you got to be on time. And that's where I think to answer the question, I know this is a question we have later, too, is he's not distributing the ball on time as accurately as need to be. And that's really it. There's really no other mystery to the red zone besides that. And he needs a running game that helps him. And so he's getting neither. And on this play specifically, it was pretty – the, the, the effects can be very, very devastating. Yep, and there's no doubt about it. And, you know, my, my decision, you know, as far as who gives – what quarterback gives this team the best chance to win games in 2018 in week 10 against the San Francisco 49ers, our next game, is more so based on the fact that I just don't, don't trust what the Giants have behind Eli than what, than what Eli is right now. Um, and I think we've made that pretty clear. Um, but another person who stood out on tape and it'd be hard to miss him was John Greco. Giants have tried moving him to right guard, but, you know, he just doesn't have the – I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Nick, but it just doesn't look like he has the play strength to play this guard position. Is that correct? I mean, he's just getting bullied around the entire game. Yeah, I think in this division, um, I was worried about Omame's weakness to speed. Uh, I'm terrified of Greco's weakness to, uh, to, to, to power spit, to power moves. Now, with that said, he played Cox pretty well a couple weeks ago. So, you know, it was a terrible no, but you see these random, you know, basically reps where all of a sudden he's in Eli's lap. And that really happened in the second half. And, it, uh, and not, you know, 
outside of the sacks, not as aggressively as you would think from the tape, but when it happened, it was really bad. It was like a yard sale. And that's just what you don't want to see. You'd rather see him at least be able to lose slowly. So, yes, I think that that's something where, you know, not only can Brown maybe help that, but you can get – then you can kind of have a competition for the center position again and, and see and see what's what. Because I do think he adds a ton of value there. Um, but I don't know – you know, I don't think that's really even going to work for next year, that type of thing. Right. And there, listen, for next year, as far as that goes, you heard it from Pat Shermer who said it on his WFAN interview earlier this week. They actually really liked, according to him, how Jalapeo was playing, and he's going to probably get that first shot next year to, to win that center job. They'll hopefully bring in competition, or maybe you know, John Greco can prove down the stretch that he's part of the, the solution potentially at center if they move him back, which they damn well should. And they should, in my opinion, Jamon Brown should play immediately at right guard coming out of the bye week. Get him ready. Won't take too much time. He started all 17 games with the Rams last year. And then you move Greco back to the center spot because I really haven't liked what I've seen from Spencer Pulley. Does that make sense to you right now, Nick? Is that what you would think is the best way for this offensive line to move forward, not only for 2018, but the future? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and again, I think it just gets to the point, too, why you want at least – they can't tank the season. They won't. But the, but there's another reason why we haven't really touched on it is you got to evaluate everyone else, and you want the best t- tape possible. And so you need to run the best offense possible. You need to run the best defense possible. And, yeah, you need that combination for that so that you can properly evaluate everything else that's going on, by the way, including the coaching staff, all across the board, including the coaching staff. So that's where this effort goes to at least put your best foot forward, and then you can, then you can move from there. No doubt. And while it is – a, you know, trying task to evaluate this offense on all 22 every week and usually leads to these kind of conversations. Um, it wasn't all bad for the Giants against the Redskins. Believe it or not, they lost 20 to 13, and the Redskins had, I believe, 13 points uh, with, with a few minutes left before the Adrian Peterson run, um, which was really just a, a result of the defense being worn down for being on the field just way, way, way too long in this game. And there were a lot of good signs from the starting defense. For starters, I thought the defensive line played excellent in, you know, their first game without Harrison. There were maybe a couple of snaps where I was like, okay, well, Harrison was missed on this play. But really, no more than that. The defensive line stepped up and played excellent football. They have such good, they have really good depth on this defensive line. Even guys like Mario Edwards stand out to me pretty. I know I've talked about Edwards before. I'm probably the biggest Edwards fan out there because I really think that every time he's in, I notice him and he's made, he's made big plays. He had, he had sacks this season. He's made big plays in the run game. I think in my opinion, from what I've seen, and I like him as a part of this future and he's not even really a featured guy. I mean, once they get RJ McIntosh back in the mix with Dalvin Thomas and BJ Hill, even Josh Morrow who plays decent football and they like him. This is a good, strong, young and, and deep defensive line. So I like that, but I know there was, a linebacker, actually, Nick, an undrafted free agent linebacker. And that always excites me because, you know, when you get rookies, there's a chance that you may be hit on gold. And that really stood out to you. And, and talk about and talk about him right now, Nick. Yeah, Tade Davis, uh, kid out of UT, UT Chattanooga. Um, you know, I watched him, obviously, in the, in the preseason. You know, he was really kind of third string at that point in terms of, I mean, easily third string, but I guess back end of third string, you know, like he got a few snaps, um, at least from what I could remember from the preseason. And just, you know, you could definitely see an undrafted free agent rookie just just kind of trying to find his way. Um, not too dissimilar from Grant Haley in the preseason. Um, and, you know, this this week, it's cool to see improvement. And it's cool to see what coaching staffs can do. And it's cool, cool to see what, you know, as the process slows down for him, as the game slows down for him, what he looked like. And, you know, really, I think he flashed the most in the passing game uh, in terms of he had a nice – it was almost a breakup. But it was really just a good read on a play that I broke down on Twitter because uh, I don't think he actually touched the ball. But it was really – it counts as a breakup in my mind. It was, it was a very good play on the ball. Just really good athleticism. Um, you know, probably not as fast as Armstrong or as – you know, like boom king as he was to, to steal his Twitter handle, but just I like I, I think his his, his AA is his athletic abilities right there with him, and the agility and the ability to have the body control and coverage is what they need like right now and then going forward. And so you want to see more guys like that develop because again, even if he's not the answer for two years, if he's better in camp, he makes everyone else better, and all of a sudden you don't have a glaring hole when whoever your starting linebacker is either has to take a blow or whatever or you know however if he gets injured. So all that type, all those types of things where you're seeing the, the defensive positions grow in spots where they were they were very big weaknesses earlier in the year. 
Yep. And is there anything else you wanted to touch on on the defensive side of the ball that stood out to you aside from the line and Tay Davis's play? No, I think that, you know, um, I think Tomlinson played better. I was sitting on a Dalvin Tomlinson piece uh, in terms of he had, he was getting pancaked a lot um, in the in the first four to four, four to five weeks. I wasn't thrown out on Twitter. I was kind of just watching it, trying to see if I could see why. And uh, you didn't see that this week. He, he had real, real good, strong bounce back, basically, from, a, from a, in my opinion, some, some kind of off games. And he and Hill are a nice combination. They're not snacks, but it's it's good, Like just like Dan said, kind of echoing that sentiment. And in general, um, you know, I think the thing I think you saw with the defense this week is he had a really good effort. You had guys doing things the right way. But then when they lose, because – because Betcher is gambling a little bit more, he's trusting his unit a little bit more. He's using more pattern match coverage. He's using more, you know, a little bit more slants, a little bit more line games. When they whiff, they kind of they will give up the big play, and I'm okay with that because the red zone defense is actually kind of strong. Um, and it's just one of those things where they have that mindset where it's kind of default aggressive. So I think what people just have to understand and why I'm saying this is is when you have developmental players, and you do in the secondary, you do kind of in the line, but mostly in the second tier and third tier, you're going to have guys mess up. Your Sean Chandler is going to blow an assignment. You know, Grant Haley's going to, he's going to get knocked down by a really strong receiver. That's okay. Right now you want to see, you want to see coachable mistakes on technique and that's what you're seeing. You're not seeing mental mistakes where Andrew Abrams is bracketing receiver and ends up staring down the quarterback. Like that's a mental mistake that coaches can't stand. And so what I'm seeing is mistakes when they happen, their technique. And it's like, Hey, you can work with it. If the guy can't get better, he's not going to be here, but you at least have that bogey in mind. Uh, so I think the defense is in a good spot and good thing to watch the next couple weeks. No doubt. And next podcast, we're going to do another one of these next week, previewing the pan- the 49ers game on Monday night football, maybe with a change of quarterback, but we're also going to dive in on, a, on that one on some things that I want to see more from the offense in a game of agree or disagree. I'm going to create, I'm going to create my own game right now, and Nick's going to be the, the the contestant. And we'll dive into that next week. We're also going to dive into some players I think need more playing time with the final eight games. But on that, but to wrap this show up uh, for the bye week, we're going to take some questions from you guys. And we're going to start with Mr. Matt from Big Blue Huddle. And he asks, why can't this team score in the red zone? Even with all the other problems they've had, it seems like they might have won a couple more games at least if they were able to capitalize in the red zone. Yeah, I think I think we had touched on that, and yeah, I think that's a good point. Is the difference between a one and seven team and a three and five team is pretty close. Um, and that's just football. That's just the way it goes. Uh, to answer the question, though, yeah, I definitely think it's kind of partially what we explained in terms of a quarterback not being able to distribute the ball on time and accurately, and it's very difficult to do that in the red zone. He needs the help of the running game, and. I'm not, I am for the quants out there. I'm not suggesting that one is going to necessarily influence the other. It's merely just getting closer to the goal line or with a guy like Barkley scoring. (laughs) He actually has that potential when given the ball. So I think that he needs to see it more. Dan's talked about that, you know, in kind of the right context, I think in overall the red zone, I actually do think it should go more through Barkley because if all guys in who can make other people miss, there's no one better on this team. Uh, So I think that has to happen. I also do think, and, and I'm kind of toying around with a piece that I'm going to write, um, the Giants, if they had a little bit more of a zone read action to their running game because they won't dress it up, they, won't, they, they don't feel like they can execute at a, they can, they can execute a wider range of schemes. So if you have the schemes that you have now, if you have duo, if you have inside zone of the weak side, if you have outside zone and, and, mid, and mid zone really, that's kind of like their, their, their game. If you have zone read, zone read keeper options to that, you can open up lanes on the backside and there's no better backside, backside lane cutter than Saquon Barkley. So that's kind of a thought. Who knows if they're going to do it? Um, and again, you need kind of a bona fide mobile quarterback to be able to have that threat of the run. Again, in the spread sense, it's not the quarterback actually running. It's the bona fide threat of the run that gives you the plus, the plus man advantage. Uh, so looking for something like that and, Again, that means it, it would be for a different quarterback. I, I think that's completely unfair statement to make on Manning, but that is what it is right now. And I don't think this necessarily has to be from their existing quarterback group. Um, you know, I don't know if they bring in a free, obviously, I don't know if they bring in a free agent, but that I think that free agent has to have that, that, that duality to him. Yeah, and that actually leads nicely into our next question from All About Blue 88, Andrew. He says, do you think that Shermer is unable to open up more of the playbook because of Eli's lack of mobility? He says, would we see more with a younger, more mobile QB, or do you think that he's able to do most of what he wants and did in Minnesota right now? 
That's a great question. And I, and I, I have to throw this claim out there again. I don't know what it is. I, it, it's unfair to say it to Manning because everyone knows what he, what, what he is, right? We know he can be that pocket passer. That's why we want him to be that pocket passer. With that said, I think that the one area of the playbook that is not being opened up nearly as much as it would be is the screen game. Not necessarily just because of Eli's lack of mobility, but his ability, his lack of placement and ability to kind of get yeah. it done in the screen. So it's not, that's not even a mobility content, you know, comment. The, no. mobi- the mobility side of the playbook where I think that is not happening is almost more on Shula's influence from what he was able to merge in Carolina with, with Cam Newton, which is like this Air Coriel language and the spread plays that Cam thrive under that North Turner is now really helping thrive down there. So I think that's the part of the playbook that you would like, if, if there was a quarterback change, all of a sudden people would go, well, there's all these plays that were there that, that of course you couldn't run without Manning. They knew that going into it. So I don't think it's specifically that I think it's, um, it's just another avenue that would become available, and that's not something they did in in Minnesota. It was that was not part of Case Keenum's game. His his scramble game was extending the pocket, extending plays, and then delivering off schedule. It was not uh, you know designed type runs that type of thing. Yeah, and you look at it, and what Shermer said before the season um, was basically this: we're going to use a lot of running back screens because we have Barkley, and we're going to use a running back a lot of back screens because he believes it's a nice addition for the offense and you just haven't seen it as much as you thought you might have this season and the big reason in my opinion for that is Eli Manning Eli Manning has throughout his entire career been really bad in the short passing game and by short I mean the the super short game the screen game especially where he's really struggled and where he continues to struggle his mobility plays a factor screen game is a lot about what the quarterback does with his footwork before the pass the timing is off and it always has been for Manning in the screen game and the Giants still, I saw a stat yesterday from ESPN, uh, matchup stat, they're still one of the best teams in the NFL on screens. Now that goes by total yardage, and Barkley had a big 75-yard screen pass. But, you know, these are the type of plays that could happen more often with a different quarterback. I really, truly believe that. I think the biggest ways that Eli Manning is holding back this Giants team is in the screen passing game in the red zone, and those are two areas where they can really stand to improve based on the fact that they've barked it for the screen game and based on the fact that the red zone offense has really, like Mr. Matt suggested earlier, played a big role in the losses and wins this season. So I don't know right away if Kyle Oletta as a rookie at a Richmond, a D2 school, can be better overall, but I think it's worth looking at at this point just based on you know, the X's and O's of it and where – the Giants struggle and where somebody with potentially his skill set, you know, someone we have saw, you know, he was the senior bowl MVP, Kyle Letty. He was extremely accurate as a passer in the red zone. That that overthrow Eli Manning threw on a one-on-one route in the red zone last week against the Redskins, the Benny Fowler, that's just a pass that can't miss the way it missed. He threw it to his left, and as Nick has broken down in the past, Manning has been much more inaccurate while throwing to his left. And this ball landed nowhere near him, despite the fact that Fowler had one-on-one coverage and an incredible amount of space to the boundary where most quarterbacks really have to hit this throw for a touchdown. And even if you don't, the play has to result in a receiver dropping the pass or the ball hitting the receiver's hands and the defensive back knocking it down. It can't be a total miss like this. Um, So, you know, it's worth seeing at this point. I do do believe that. But Al Goggin, we'll move on. Al Goggin asks, with a strong on paper draft class next year, what's your plan for the offensive line moving forward? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I definitely, uh, I definitely think they're going to go after a tackle in the draft, or obviously some some level of the offensive line. I think it doesn't necessarily have to be in the in the top round picks. I think it'll be or can be in the mid round picks as well. I think the whole thing kind of echoes our sentiment of just getting better, more competition in house. You know, I was thinking last night. Um, the Washington left tackle and the names are, are escaping me. This, this, this tackle class. Is, yeah. Oh, 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 in this class. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. The Washington state kid. Getting his name. Yeah. Yeah. And so like there, this, this class is deep. And I just think that that's the way to do it is you take guys that, you know, everyone takes the judgment coming into coming out of college that can this guy play tackle or should he bump down? And I think the, the Giants should take the attitude, that same attitude and embrace that. Where if he if it's a guy, if it's a talented tackle that's a talented tackle slash guard, bring him in anyway. It doesn't really I think that versatility is what you want, that competition is what you want. And you know, again, worse comes to worse. It's like you you gain you gain and foster assets versus always having to buy assets, which does not always work, especially in New York. 
Yeah, no doubt. And you look at what the Patriots did. Unfortunately, he got injured, but they did that with Isaiah Wynn, a guy who they said can't play a tackle in the NFL, but he was one of the best left tackles in the, in the college football last year for Georgia. And he did get injured, but he can play guard or tackle for them when he comes back from that injury. And really, it's just about make my plan would be this, Al, if you're asking. It would be completely a makeup for what Jerry Reese did. Jerry Reese's crew drafted just seven offensive linemen in 11 draft classes in rounds one through four. Seven. That's just not a way to win. It's a scholarship style football, like I like I mentioned before, what Banks has said and what I what kind of got in my head. But I mean, it's not competition on the line. So my plan going forward does depend a lot on what they see from Jermon Brown down the stretch. I think he has what it takes to be their solution at right guard. So that kind of would change the whole plan. But this is a bit of a deep t- class at offensive tackle. I think in round two, when they pick at number 32 or three or four, wherever they're picking in that second round, the top of the second round, there's going to be a really good prospect that Gelman's going to like, another Taylor Moten type, even though they found Moten when he was with the Carolina Panthers in the back end of the second round. But there's going to be another type like him who they're going to like. And you know what? For all that we can say about Gettleman in his first year, he has done a really good job valuing the draft class, and he had a lot. He has a lot more time to work with on those players, and there's a lot less data on them than there is for free agents like Patrick Omame. You have to take a swing on because the class is so so pathetically weak every year on the offensive line and free agency. But in the draft, you get your pick of everyone. So I'm I, I'm excited about what Gentleman's going to do from the offensive line. I don't love him as a general manager for a lot of the other reasons <laughs> that he you know for just the fact that I don't think he did a good job of assessing the value of the number two overall pick in the last draft class. I don't think he should have ever passed on Josh Rosen or Sam DeArnold. And I think it's going to haunt this franchise potentially, but for the fact that a just pure evaluation of the draft standpoint, I like what I've seen so far. So that would be my plan. Um, Lisa asks, how much does Laletta or how does Laletta help Barkley in the run game? Because I think he's going to get killed behind that line. Before we crown a new quarterback, we better build that line because no one can stand behind that line. So it's a bit of a question and a statement from Lisa. How do, how do you plead, Nick? Yeah, going back to that, I guess it's kind of echoing the zone read element. Um, that's one aspect of a, of a bona fide what a bona fide mobile quarterback does. And again, just to just to back up for a second, zone read is if, if is it is if you have inside zone or any run play running in one direction, zone read is the quarterback on a QB keeper option running in the opposite direction. So if you can think that in your mind, the backside players they can't play the front side. They can't. They can't. The, the linebackers don't scrape this. They, they don't go downhill. They have to scrape to the outside. You just overall have to respect what's going to happen on the other side of the field. And we've seen the Giants have some headaches like that early in the season on that play. Uh, so I think that's one avenue. Um, the other side of it too is is just is just overall what a change would do. Um, I know that that's that's again a hard, like kind of like just harsh and just to, for the incumbent quarterback that is what it is. It's just you know someone new coming into the to the organization to the to the playing field may help. Uh, but again, to get back to it, I think that it's the mobility there. It's the it's the better decision making. It's the ability to run the offense as it's intended and give that the chance. Uh, that that'll that'll really make the change. And ultimately, yes, you need to upgrade the line too. But it has to be hand in hand, and it's not going to be a scenario where they get the best. They somehow reincarnate, you know, the the, the early '90s Dallas Cowboys offensive line, and all of a sudden you go draft a quarterback. It can't be done like that. Yeah, I'm with I'm with you there. But I mean, really, I know, and I know this is not Lisa's not the only one who's had this question for us, and who's not the only one who's felt this way. But you know. I understand why you might think that, okay, the Giants have a bad offensive line. How's a rookie quarterback going to be behind there? And I have those same concerns, but I think we've kind of gone over some of the ways where just his skill set, well, what his skill set can help a team like this. And maybe at the same time, you know, Eli Manning is, is playing a little bit into not in the run game or not as much in the run game. While they can run zone read, I still think there are overall issues that Nick would agree in the run game that just really are going to hold this team back from being a good run team in, in 2018. Huh. But, you know, as far as the red zone goes, as far as just trusting his offensive line and pass protection, these are areas where another quarterback may be able to help the Giants. But we'll move on from that because Mike O'Brien asks, moving forward, how about getting Brian Mahalik more playing time at right tackle? Nick, do you have any opinion on what you saw from Mahalik, who stepped in, by the way, for those who don't know, in the second half, that Wheeler at right tackle when Wheeler went down with a with a bit of an ankle injury. Yeah, I think definitely can get him in. I think that the expectations though are pretty low. Um, I haven't done a super thorough evaluation. There's not a ton of tape from the Detroit time, uh, and honestly, I didn't uh, I didn't focus on that side of the line when uh, 
when he stepped in. Um, you know, I, I just think overall you're you're seeing a guy that you know if if the, the most of the scouting reports that I've read on him, it, the projection is not very high. So I think that if it's there, great. But I think that again, it, it needs the, the competition needs to be higher at the, on that side. And, and and again, I think it gets there with Brown too. Uh, but so you, I think you definitely should see him because that's that's the whole goal of competition. But um, I'm not. My expectations are lower there for him. I'm with Nick on this. I mean, there's very little to go off if he appeared in a couple games for the Lions last year. For those who don't know, he entered the draft as basically a five or three technique defensive end and a three four converted to offensive tackle. Has incredible length, um, and you know, there's not much of a high projection on him. But at the same time, Nick, at this point, <laughs> at one and seven, I wouldn't be opposed to playing him at some point over Wheeler. For those who, for those who don't know, Wheeler, according to Pro Football Focus is dead last in the entire NFL for any player who's played uh, a certain barrier of snaps. I believe it was uh, 40% of the snaps on the offensive line this season. Overall grade, pass blocking, run blocking. He is awful. Like, let's be honest. He's not going to play right tackle in the NFL. Could he be decent at left tackle? Maybe. I mean, he was decent in his one game at left tackle last season, week 17 against the Washington Redskins. But I don't like Wheeler for this team at right tackle at all. Um, and, you know – it might be worth seeing what Mahalik has for maybe a four or five game stretch this offseason, just so they can, you know, decide going into camp or just because they can decide it's going into next offseason, who's going to step in as the competition. Cause let's be honest, they need somebody else to play right tackle. I don't think either of these two are the answer. Um, I hope Mahalik proves me wrong. I don't believe I'm going to buy back in on Wheeler. Uh, but, but that's kind of where we stand right now. Um, the last question comes from giants dreaming. He asks, how do Eli and the Giants gracefully part ways without fanfare? Both sides need to get this right. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, obviously, there's conversations being had that we don't, we're not privy to, to how this, how this has played out to this point. If they're doing, if they're, if they're going business as usual, and no one's really said anything to each other, and then all of a sudden they're going to say it to them, I don't know. Uh, I think that in general, you know, I think that you have to have. Um, Okay, you know, I'm kind of shooting for the cuff here, but I think that they should do it now because it it take it removes the element if it removes the element if he has like a really good game and then or has or a good stretch and then you want to see Laletta. It, it, it and if you and we don't know what the practice tape is like on Laletta, he could be completely bombing and not understanding the offense. Alex Tanny could be crushing it and be the guy who's going to play. We don't know that part, but I just think it would be very tough where if all of a sudden you get this surge and then you pull him and it kind of has a, it doesn't make sense as much. And again, the surge is going to be anything for, 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 for playing, or do you want for, or for the season, I should say, or do you want him to, to finish strong? I don't think that really makes a difference. I think they should do it now because that way it just, it allows him to kind of be in the background without any more attention of, of poor play and then having to basically yank him. Yeah. I'm with you, Nick. I think now is actually the perfect time for that reason too. We don't want to see, you don't want to see a good stretch for Manning. I hate to say that. I'd love to see it for him specifically, but, and it sucks that this is how he's going to go out. Like if they do it now, he goes out in the worst possible way, you know, with this, the, this bad start to the 2018 season. But at the same time, I do think with what, what transpired last season actually is going to help the giants in this transition away from Eli, because a lot of the bad blood got out last year with everything that went down in his benching. And I think at this point, a lot of Giants fans who have been through it have basically over the process in the sense that they're, you know, there's going to be less negative fanfare from this decision now because they've already been prepared for it after last year. So, and this team is now one in seven for the second straight season. And quarterback position is the most important position in the NFL. Now I know there's still a strong contingent of Giants fans who are, who are, you know, set in, in the fact that they believe the offensive line is the issue, and Eli Manning is not the issue at all. Now, we obviously, me and Nick, don't believe that anymore at this point. Um, but, you know, there still is a, sh a strong chunk of those fans. But even that group of fans that is so dead set on that still went through what every, every other person in the fan base went through last season with the benching. And they've been prepared. Like I said, they've been prepared for this. So, to me, they, the Giants don't have to do much to get this right. Uh, in the sense of when of doing it or not, they just have to decide the best time to do it. And we think it's now, but you know, they may think it might be in a few games when they have, when they feel like uh, Laletta is more prepared because they may make the decision that, Hey, even if Tanny is right now an option that could be better than Eli, or that should be the next guy up after Eli, they don't 
see any future in Eli's. I'm sorry, in Tanny. So they want to first when they make the change. I think they're going to want to make the change to Letta, and they got to feel like he's prepared for that. If that makes sense. Uh, but yeah, on that note, guys, we're gonna we're gonna end it now. Like I said, next week we got a good show prepared. Uh, we'll dive into a little bit of what we want to see in the second half of the season, while also previewing obviously the Giants matchup with the with the 49ers. But you know, more more so just focusing on what we want to see and who's who we're highlighting that could be part of this team in the future. But on that note, guys, thanks again for tuning in. As always, you can find the rest of my work um, if you download the CBS Sports app and then click the Giants as your favorite team. All my articles go up on the CBS Sports app. So that's the best way to do it. You can also follow Giants on 24-7 Sports on Facebook if you're a big Facebook guy or girl, and that's your way of getting news. And as always, I like to keep the banter and the conversation going on Twitter at Dan Schneier NFL. Um, Nick, where can we find all your work? Uh, uh, really kind of like on a bi-monthly basis, inside the pylon.com. I write weekly at cover1.net, and my Twitter handle, teammanic21. Um Again, starting to kind of do basically ad hoc or by request breakdowns of film. If anyone has any questions, I'll kind of take the most, uh, you know, for specific film work, I'll take the most, you know, the the ones that request the most and do them there. I'm also available in Big Blue Huddle and on Reddit and those type of avenues in the message boards too. Awesome. And as always, guys, if you do enjoy, guys and girls, if you do enjoy the podcast, please, please, please do us a favor, tell your friends. But more importantly, please. Uh, give us a rating and a review and download the podcast on iTunes. That is only going to help us grow this moving forward. And on that note, everyone, have a good week and enjoy your first Sunday without Giants football. And I, and I say enjoy only because that's kind of where the team's left the fan base at this point for, for the 2018 season. But on that note, guys, have a good weekend and uh, go Giants.